Yeah, this is my life. I'm done trying to convince people I'm real. Welcome to the Road to the Olympic Trials podcast on the Rambling Runner Podcast Network. This is the show that provides you an insider's look into the training of eight of America's top marathoners as they prepare for the Olympic Trials in February, the Olympic Marathon Trials. And I hope you liked the first two episodes. Parker Stinson and Roberta Groner, they both dropped last week on Thursday and Friday. We had to wait on Parker's. The, the original plan was to launch it on Tuesday, but then the Chicago Marathon kind of moved their launch date in terms of releasing the elite field for their marathon. And because Parker and I talked about that marathon, we had to wait for them to make that official announcement before we released the show because we didn't want to preempt them. So that's why we dropped two episodes in two days. But now we're back on the normal plan schedule, Mondays and Fridays, for the next few weeks for this show. And today's episode is with Lou Serafini. So Lou... I'll tell you what, man, over the last two years, he's had a wide range of experiences from hitting, or I should say breaking, the four-minute mile to setting new personal bests at the half marathon, and we also talk about his recent experience in Duluth at the Grandma's Marathon. Also, a shout-out to the other show on the Rambling Runner Podcast Network, the Rambling Runner Podcast. On Wednesday, I'm interviewing Jessica Dorsey, who also ran Grandma's. Uh, she set a PR there, ran 253, and she also is a small business owner. She started her, her own uh, small business that I can't wait for you to hear about because it's also running related. And you know, she does the whole am dedicated amateur running thing uh, with Gusto, and she's hoping this year to see if she can get in the Olympic trials as well. So it's not on the Olympic trials feed here, but it may be of interest to you if you already like this show. So with all of that being said, let's get into it with Lou Serafini. Hello, Lou, and welcome to the show. Hey, how's it going? Happy to be here. Oh, it's going great. I really appreciate you jumping on and being a part of this project and letting us see exactly what you're, you're going to be doing in preparation for Atlanta. Yeah, I think it's really cool that you're um, profiling some people and telling some stories for sure. Um, I think it's going to be really exciting closer we get to the race. Yeah, absolutely. And what I'm doing for kind of the first episode for each individual is kind of doing a little bit of like an introduction and kind of setting the stage for the upcoming year. With that said, we'll start, we're certainly going to be doing some of that today. But shoot, you just came off a big race. So we can also talk a little bit more present tense with what's going on. So you just had uh, Grandma's Marathon this weekend. So let's just dive into that. First of all, say like, you know, right when the beginning of your taper started a couple weeks ago, how did you feel about how your, your training block had gone? Oh, uh, it was great. Um, it's definitely the best training block that I've had, I think. Um you know, since graduating, everything went really smoothly, even through the taper. So, you know, owe a lot to my coach. And yeah, it was just a really fun spring. You know, I got to race a bunch and set a lot of good PRs in the buildup. And even even race day, you know, it wasn't perfect, but uh, it was a really good experience. So I was really happy with it. And you've had a bunch of good buildups in the past. I know, you know, the marathon has been kind of a fickle friend for you in terms of you've had a lot of good buildups in the past. And then race day is kind of like, You've had some really good ones and had ones that didn't quite go your way. And you mentioned this was the best buildup that you've had. 
So what were some of the, the big workouts or the big kind of lead up races that for you indicated that things were really moving in the right direction? Yeah, I don't know. My, so I, I really just been on the track the past couple of years. So I wasn't really sure what to expect going to the season. And, you know, we like to race like a decent amount in buildups. I think my coach and, and I agree that it's important to kind of be building towards something, not just one big race at the end of a block. So, you know, we did a, we did a 10K back in March, like right at the beginning of a buildup, you know, coming right off of track season. And it was like a, a really tough course. Uh, it was like basically just this random St. Patrick's Day 10K out in Holyoke, uh, Springfield area. And you just run uphill for four miles and then down a mountain for a mile and then, and then it's flat for the last mile. And I had a really good day that day. I ran like 2940 or 2935 or something like that and won the race in, in tough conditions. And, you know, one of the cool things about the way I'm or my coach and I's relationship, I guess, is he, he was also a elite distance runner and, and has done a lot of the same races that I've done. So, um, it's easy to compare the training and compare the races. And, you know, I, after the race, I was within like three or four seconds of his PR and he's like a 211 guy. So, you know, it's good to have that confidence. And that was kind of the race that got the ball rolling for me. And then from there, it was just trying bigger and bigger races as I went along. Cherry Blossom went really well. I finished top 10 at that. U.S. Half Champs, I finished sixth, I think, overall, which is the highest finish I've ever had at a U.S. Championship. And then and then Brooklyn two weeks after that was a massive PR in the half marathon. So, you know, I workouts were fine and long runs were fine, but I think the races that I was doing uh, really indicated to me that I was fit and, and kind of ready to compete with, you know, runners at that next level. Um, that was what was new, this training block. I, I've never really been at the point where I can step on the line and, and feel like I can compete with whoever's on the starting line. And, and I kind of gained that confidence this year, I think. And we should mention that your coach is Randy Thomas, correct? Yes. So right. he, yeah, so, so he, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> no, I was going to say, so, so you, he, you met him originally because he was the women's coach at Boston College when you were there. Bingo. Yeah. Uh, never was coached by him, but always, always admired him and knew he was a great marathoner and had been coaching myself for a while and felt like I was ready for a coach again and, uh, reached out and it's, it's been about two and a half years since. So. Yeah, and I loved hearing um, you talk on some other podcasts uh, about your relationship with him, how it started such such a weird way for you because you went to go see him, you know, to talk about training, and you're really excited that you'd finally hit like the 217 mark in the marathon and be like, go get a coach that you thought he was going to be like, all right, the high mileage guy from the 70s, yeah. you know, the Bill Rogers ilk, and then and then what did he have you do for your very first day of being coached by Randy Thomas? Like, what did he have you do? Uh, he said, take tomorrow off and then we'll get started. <laughs> so I think it was my first, it would have been like my first day off in four months. I ran that 217 in October, ran the very next day and then, uh, had been training since then. And that meeting was in like December. So yeah, I don't know. There, there were a lot of changes, but, um, they were all positive. You know, I, the, the speed finally kind of got developed for me. So right. Cause you've kind of gone through. I wouldn't say cyclical, but you know, the, the path that you've taken is a unique one where you, you had the college plateau that you reached and then you were like swore off the track and then, mm -hmm. you know, kind of, and then you had this period of time where you kind of stepped away from running 
And, you know, getting back into it, then you started going like super high mileage. And then with Randy, you started dialing it back. Where have you landed this spring from a mileage perspective? Uh, yeah, so I think I, um, that was one of the things that I, I tried to really pay a little closer attention to than I have, you know, since starting to work with RT. Like, I know that I respond well to high mileage. And he's like not the type of coach that will give me like very, very specific mileage goals. He'll just be like, you know, try to live between 80 and 90 miles a week. And, you know, higher weeks might be closer to 100. And I should mention that's in six days, not seven. So um, it really averages to a little bit more than that. But I kind of let myself be a little more aggressive with the mileage this time around because um, I know I can handle it. And, uh, I was touching, you know, I had a couple hundred mile weeks, um, some in six days, some in seven and a bunch between 95 and a hundred. And I think the speed was still there. And I think that that's a really important element for us. We want to be able to go and race a good hard 10 K or a good half marathon as, as well as a good marathon. Um, I think the best runners in the world are the ones that can develop that speed and then learn how to race the marathon distance. So I think that's what we're trying to do and still learning. And I still actually haven't really sat down and chatted with him. I, I would love to like try doing a little, even a little bit more mileage for the next one. But ultimately I think we're doing all the right things and, you know, learning a lot uh, as we go along. And I think as long as we're trending in the right direction, we're, we're not really doing anything wrong. So. Yeah, I mean, the, you like you said, your spring went really, really well. You ran the 103 in Brooklyn, as you mentioned, uh, six in U.S. champs for the half. When you're planning the week with with Randy and going through exactly how it's going to work, how do you segment the easy runs and the workout the workout days in the long run? What what does it what does a typical? I know every week is different, but what does like a typical yeah, yeah. week look like for you? It's pretty standard. I I pride myself on keeping things really simple. That's how I coach people. Uh, I think it's a pretty simple formula. You know, it's basically just keeping the quality days quality, um, which means, you know, two workouts in the long run. And then every other day is just like mileage or recovery. But in a marathon build, you know, it might be like fartlek workout on Tuesday, uh, midweek long run of like, you know, between 13 and 16 miles on Wednesday, a recovery day on Thursday, and then like intervals on Friday. Uh, and then coming back with another long run on the weekend. Uh, that's, that's generally how it breaks down, you know, and it doesn't really change much when I'm training for shorter stuff. It just might be the workouts are slightly different and the long runs are a little bit shorter. And I think that that consistency kind of helps me get into a rhythm and, you know, keeps my body from getting confused and you just really start to get the ball rolling and keep it rolling. So I think that consistency is like one of the big reasons why I've been able to improve so much over the last couple of years. And when you do your long runs, are they they're typically easy paced or do you try to throw in uh, kind of workout segments or hot miles into them at all? Uh, it depends on the day. <laughs> um, I'm not someone that does a lot of like long run workouts. I know that's like a very trendy thing to do in marathon training. Um, I know a lot of like the NAZ guys do that. And I, that's something I used to do a lot of when I was coaching myself. Uh, but no, like, I mean, there's some days where I'll, I'll rip like six by mile on Friday and then I'll look at the weather forecast and it's beautiful on Saturday and rainy on Sunday. So I'll just go out and do my long run on Saturday. And, you know, if you go try to run five thirties after six by mile, you're not going to have a very good day. So, um, so it really depends on the weekend, but 
you know, if I've got a day off in between and I've got nothing coming up, I like to get out and, and try to roll a little bit and get the legs moving and just keep it quality. But I think at the end of the day, if you're running two hours plus, like that's a quality effort, no matter how fast you're running. That's a great point. Yeah. And, and you've described yourself uh, as a blue collar runner. And for you, what, what, mm-hmm. ex- what exactly does that mean? Um, I don't know. I just think it means that uh, I, I get out and I do the work. You know, I, I've got a job that's flexible and uh, I can work from home occasionally if I need to. I can go meet um, I coach for workouts, but at the end of the day, you know, I'm still working tons of hours and on my feet a lot, you know, leading up to cherry blossom or sorry, I should, I guess Pittsburgh, you know, I was coming off of two ma- marathons. We have a Boston marathon here and pretty much on your feet for five to six days straight, uh, grinding in the store at Tracksmith. And then a week after that, we flew out to London and we were there for a week and we did the same thing and then had to come back and, um, and, and try to go rip a good race at Pittsburgh and um, was able to have a good one. And I, I think that like, you know, I'm a big believer in like keeping the balance in your life. And I, I think that I was someone, I know a lot of people can probably relate to this. Like I love running so much that you just want to pour everything into it uh, and do everything that you can to be the best runner that you can be. And I think I, what I learned in high school and college is that sometimes that can be a little counterproductive causes you to lose the joy when it doesn't go the way that you want it to go. Um, and it took me a long time to learn that. And kind of just by trial and error, I've learned that, you know, by having a good job and having a lot of good people in your life and people that support you, uh, you can distract yourself with a lot of good things and still and still be a really solid competitive runner. So, um, so yeah, I think, I think that's all that it means to me. You know, I'm just getting out there and doing the work and grinding no matter what's going on in the background. Yeah, because you, like you said, you have a full time job at Tracksmith, which, you know, it's, it's nice because it dovetails nicely with your own passions that you have. But at the same time, you know, a job is a job and you have responsibilities and there are things that you need to get done and you don't work necessarily typical hours either. Like you mentioned with, you know, certain races and getting out there and, you know, you, you oftentimes show yourself on social media working with various athletes, not only that you coach, but you know, the group runs and all of that, right? And mm-hmm. it's, it's obviously you have like a foot in the elite running community with your own efforts, but you also have a foot in the, the amateur running community as well. And talk a little bit about how when you, after college, had this down period where you'd kind of disengaged from running, about how your you kind of like your your passion for running kind of got reignited once you kind of stepped into this world of working with amateur athletes. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're, I mean, you're brought up in high school and even college, especially college, um, to look at running in one way. Like, you know, if you ran in high school and then you went on to run in college, you know, you run three seasons, cross country, indoor, outdoor track, you race every weekend. Um, you listen to your coach, you grind, you do your thing. And that really wears on you a lot. I think, you know, it's really tough to give 150% to a sport some people are doing that eight years in a row from high school into college. And then some elite athletes go on and try to continue doing that professionally. And for me, I got to even my junior year, but like really my senior year, I got to the end of the rope and I was like, damn, I don't, I can't, <laughs> I can't keep doing this. Like I can't keep running four ten in the mile or, um, or whatever. And like, I'm not, obviously that's a, a good time, but I, I hit this plateau and I just, 
I was so frustrated and not having fun with the sport. So I don't know when I when I graduated and I eventually found myself in a retail job, just kind of slinging shoes, um, start meeting people in the community and, and talking to them and take the emphasis off yourself and learning about their running goals and their endeavors and starts to feed your fire a little bit. And yeah, I don't know. I just, I fell into this great community role at Tracksmith where I get to, uh, talk to runners every single day. Um, we've got a racing team here, so I've gotten the opportunity to meet a lot of like post-collegiate runners. The group that I was working most closely with this past spring was a group of five women that were all trying to run Olympic trials qualifier at grandma's. We, we came close with a lot of them, but a lot of them set PRs. And, you know, I, I like working with other people and, and helping them find the joy in, in the sport. Like I've been able to found, find it. So I, I think it's just taking the emphasis off of like the really serious parts of things and, and really trying to find the things in the sport that make you happy. That's the key. Uh, and I think that's the thing that people struggle with the most probably. But I, I think I've found the balance in um, doing all this community stuff here. So, yeah, and I think it's you know, this has been documented in a lot of different studies and different anecdotes. But it seems like by focusing on other people that allowed you to kind of resist the burnout that comes with just focusing on your own endeavors, even as serious as they may be and as serious as you take them. You didn't have to leave running to stop burning out from running. Just focusing on other aspects of running mm-hmm. has allowed you, you know, to kind of given you, given you more room in this space. Yeah. And they're, they're positive distractions too. You know, like it's, it's not like I'm distracting myself with things that aren't feeding my own running or whatever. You know, I get hyped up when I time a great workout for someone. Um, makes me want to go out and rip my workout too. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think for a lot of people, you know, just this, the whole relative nature of running, I think can't be under, understated because you see someone, you know, achieve their, their best performance possible given their current fitness level. It's inspiring to see someone put it on the line, mm-hmm. especially to witness it in person, no matter their ability, because you can see the effort all over their face. And we all know what it looks like to work extremely hard and to kind of really test your limits and to be able to work with people on a consistent basis. I can see how that could really reignite you um, once you've stepped away. Yeah, no, it's definitely a good feeling for sure. All right. So post these races, you know, the, the Brooklyn half us champs, you are kicking, butt. you're feeling good. Things are going really well. When you started to strategize for grandmas, what were either the goal, the goal time range, or just the, the specific uh, strategy that you were going into the race having? Uh, so, I kind of like came into the spring with the main goal of getting an Olympic trials qualifier. And I wasn't sure if that was going to come in the half or, or come in the full. I was able to run under it a couple times in the half marathon, which is great. And I, I kind of told myself at the beginning, uh, you know, if I get it in the half, then we're going to be aggressive in the full. Uh, if I don't get it in the half, then we'll go out and we'll try to run 217, 218 and, and see what happens. So, you know, I was going into it with like a ton of confidence and I, I just told myself I got nothing to lose. Uh, I've, I've run 217 before. I, I didn't come all the way out here to run another 217 or even a 216. So, uh, I, I was really hoping to get under the A standard. And I think that my, my fitness indicated that I was probably in somewhere between 212 and 214, 215 shape. 
So um, I'm a big like believer that you don't you don't chase times. Um, you just race. And obviously the marathon's a whole nother beast. And I think that that's a reason, one of the reasons why I've struggled to kind of figure out the distance up to this point is because like I'm a racer and I like to just put myself out there and compete no matter what. And, uh, the marathon's the only distance that I race that if I, I that I'm going to blow up in, like even if I go out too hard and a half, you can hold it together and, and finish it up without like really hitting the wall. But the marathon, if like, you know, if you get over aggressive, then you're going to pay the price. And, that's what keeps happening to me. That being said, I think you know, the goal at grandma's was like, go find a pack, go run with those guys and try to run a strong last 10 K and close. And that's what I did. And I found myself with all the uh, top Americans in the race, which was kind of, you know, where I was expecting to be. Uh, so it was the zap fitness guys. Uh, there was, I think four of them, I believe. Uh, a roots running guy, Willie Millum, it was his first marathon. And then there was also an East African in that group. So there was a, a good bunch of us that came through about half marathon together. And, you know, hindsight's always perfect in a marathon, right? But, you know, <laughs> one, one person from that group finished it and, and ran a 212. Uh, and that was Andrew Colley ran a 212 and he almost won the race and everyone else really struggled home. Uh, I know one guy dropped out. And I think the rest of us ran right around 220. So uh, I think we all went into it with the same mindset, knowing that, you know, we were 62 to 64 minute half marathoners and and that we were fit and ready to roll. And it was cool to be in a pack of guys that was like really shooting, shooting for a fast time. Um, but I think for most of us, the pace that we went out at was just slightly too ambitious but looking back, I, I really have no regrets about it. You know, I, I have aspirations of running 210, not not 220 or, or 218 or whatever. So um, I'll keep throwing it at the wall and waiting for something to stick. And and now I, I know that I can go into my next marathon, like just confident that I can go out at that pace or close to that pace and know what it's going to feel like in the second half or just know that I'm capable of it. So it was a really, really good learning experience. If you're listening to this, then you love listening to podcasts and music. And let me tell you about a company called Aftershocks. Aftershocks is the award-winning headphone brand best known for its ear-opening listening experience. Powered by patented best-in-class bone conduction technology, Aftershocks headphones sit outside your ear so you can hear your music and your surroundings at the same time. Aftershocks is a must-have headphone for runners providing them the ultimate level of safety and comfort without compromising sound quality, and that's a big one. You know, you want to be able to hear what you're listening to. That's the whole point in the first place. So to learn more and to save $50 on Aftershocks Endurance Bundles, visit olympictrials.aftershocks.com. Again, Aftershocks is great, and one of the things I love about them is the all-day comfort. Right. If you're going on a long run or even shoot, even if you're a, a bike rider, you're going on one of those four or five mile rides. Aftershocks is huge because you can hear the cars coming, but you also have that all day comfort, which you don't necessarily get with earbuds. And for me, a lot of earbuds, once I, once I start sweating, they just fall right out of my ear. 
That is not what you're looking for, and that is not what Aftershocks will do to you either because it sits outside your ear and provides you with that high-quality audio experience you're looking for. So get $50 off. Again, on the Aftershocks Endurance Bundle, visit olympictrials.aftershocks.com. Okay, so you came through the 10K in 31.05 and then the half in 106.21. So you're under 510 pace at that point. You know, you're mm-hmm. in a group, as you mentioned, and you know, you're right there in the, like in the top 10, roughly speaking. And when you're, when you were at that point in the race, what were you feeling in terms of your body and how it was reacting? And what were you thinking about the overall pace that you were holding at that time? Yeah. So I, I really try not to look at the base at all, uh, if I can help it and just run off a of feel. I think that that's really important. I think people get too hung up on the pace. And, and I also just, you know, I hadn't done any work like at goal marathon pace or whatever. I, you know, do all of my work under pace. So I was really just trying to be as comfortable as possible. I'd say, you know, 10K, I felt great that pack of Americans, I was actually ahead of them for a bit and they caught me around like maybe right around 10 K or so. And that was when I kind of, I had been settling back into a pace that felt comfortable to me. But when that like Peloton group caught me, I just tried to tuck in and run with them. And it definitely felt like we were pressing a little bit from seven to 13 and you go through rough patches in a marathon. And I, I was just trying to trust my fitness and trying to stay as relaxed as I could. So that's what I did. And uh, at that point, I was committed to the pace, too. Uh, there was no one behind me. And I had this big pack of people to run with, people in that group that I'd beaten this year in races. So I knew I was capable of running with them and figured, you know, if they were going to slow down, that I could always just slow down with them if I wanted to. So I was kind of just either waiting for a split to happen or just trying to be patient and cover moves. And basically for that six miles from like seven to 13, there were no splits. Uh, everyone covered all the moves. And we came through halfway and and halfway was kind of right around where things started to go south. I would say the two guys up front, Andrew and Josh, were clearly feeling a little bit better. So they were just really pushing on and kind of pressing a little bit. Um, So kind of let them go. And what ended up happening was Willie tried to chase them. So I kind of let him go as well. And then everyone else kind of splintered off behind me. So I kind of was kind of left in no man's land a little bit. And at that point, I was definitely feeling a little nervous, you know, from 13 to 16. But again, like I said, you know, you have your rough patches and marathons. So I just tried to lock it in and run comfortable and controlled for as long as I could and was hoping for the best. And I think around like 17, 18, it was, it was, had become pretty clear that it was going to be a tough last 15K or so. But I'm ultimately pretty proud of how I held on. You know, I, I ran 520s for a while. Once I got into the 20-mile range, I was running closer to like 6 minute, 615, 630 miles. But I have blown up a lot worse. <laughs> uh, the marathon that I had done before that was Boston. I think I went out in about 68 minutes and, and came back in about, I think, 90. So <laughs> so I'll, I'll take a, a 70, uh, what was it, 75 or whatever, second half. Not, not too bad. So we'll we'll figure it out. So what do you learn from a race like that? Like, what, what were your biggest takeaways, both positive and negative? Uh, I mean, positive takeaways are 
I think I'm, I'm capable of, of running with those people. I just might need to be a little bit smarter and a little more conservative in the first half. I think that that's definitely the main takeaway. It's just, uh, you know, the marathon, the marathon is a tough distance. And if you're going to, if you're an aggressive racer, you just, I think you just need to continuously be holding back and telling yourself to chill. And I think when you have a really good spring, like I did and have a lot of good races, your confidence is really high and it's hard to turn that off sometimes. So you, know, you get out there and you're rolling with a pack and you, you start to believe that you can run to 1130 or whatever pace they're trying to run. So you just roll with it. And then next thing you know, you're, you're cooked. So I don't think that's ever going to change for me and it's going to be hard. I, I just, I'm just such a competitive person. And like, especially when I start beating those types of people and I put myself on a line with them, I'm, I'm just, that I'm not going to settle for less than that. So, um, I'm not sure what the next rate, next marathon is going to be. I think the main thing that I'll do differently is just be more conservative, but it's still going to be an ag- aggressive pace goal. And, and I don't know how it's going to end up, but uh, I'm definitely going to keep, keep shooting for the time that I want to run. And when you're, in the situation like you were in, in that race, what's the, what's the calculus that you're running through your head in terms of feeling the need to run with the group versus kind of being all alone, whether it's you, you speeding up or you potentially slowing down. And I guess another way of saying that is like, how much of a, of an attractiveness is it to run with a group of people versus sticking to your own pace? Well, one of the, um, one of the only things that, Randy told me before the race was like to try to put yourself with a pack of people that will help you get through, you know, 20 K to 35 K. So, you know, that, that two thirds, middle two thirds of the race or whatever. Um, so I was just trying to do that. I think, uh, I'm fine with running alone. I ran, I ran Brooklyn alone. I do all of my workouts alone. I know what's comfortable. And again, hindsight's always perfect in a marathon. And I think ultimately had I gone back in time and, and just, ran my own effort for that first 16, 17, 18 miles and really stayed conservative and comfortable. I, I could have really, you know, maybe run 214, 215 on the day. But yeah, you know, I chose to run with the group and go for it and uh, paid, paid the price a little. Yeah, it, it, it makes a lot of sense to try to run with the group, especially during those tough miles, because it's easier to feed off of people, you know, and it really without getting too much in your own head. At the same time, I just want to talk about the beginning of a marathon for you, you know, the first the first half or so, because you mentioned how you want to run, you kind of run by feel, you want to run, you know, in a kind of comfortable setting. But obviously, in the beginning of the first half marathon, you're going to assume that it's not going to be too, you know, it's still a race, but you're not going to be pressing too hard, because obviously that would mean for some pretty negative things in the second half of the race. So how do you decide? What feels good versus what feels maybe a touch too fast? And what's that? What's, what's it like trying to navigate that fine line? Uh, it's just years and years of <laughs> being in tune with yourself as a runner. I think, um, I work with a lot of runners and I think that's probably the number one thing. I just try to hammer home. If you can teach yourself to know what feels comfortable and what doesn't, uh, you're going to be a great runner. So, um, Obviously, I mean, there were signs. I, I think that there were signs in the race that, that told me that I was running a little bit too aggressively. And I think when you're in a marathon and when you're committed, like I was, like you just try to stay positive and tell yourself that it's just a rough patch and you're going to get through it. But yeah, I really try to just listen to my body as, as well as I can. And I probably just wasn't listening perfectly on Saturday, but uh, I've had plenty of races where I did, you know, I at Brooklyn, 
you know, second place was only about 15 seconds behind me. And I, I made the decision to, to lead from the gun and, and just go run my own race and was able to do that successfully start to finish. And I don't think I would have run as fast had I gone out with the pack. I think we probably would have been a little conservative in the first half and, and maybe I would have still gotten the win. But, you know, I think the best, again, the best runners are the people that know what they're capable of and, and, uh, can really listen to their bodies and be in tune and, and know what's good and what's not. And the marathon is probably the distance, even though I've done six now, I, I think it's still the distance that I'm the least experienced at, you know, you think you have it figured out and, and then it, uh, humbles you, <laughs> but it's, it's, I think it's a harder distance to figure out because you don't get to do as many of them. You can't do a marathon every weekend. <laughs> I know some people do, but, um, but most people don't. And, um, you look at someone like Meb never has had the fastest PRs, but that guy knows how to race a marathon. He can, he can win it if it's a fast pace or a slow pace. And I think that's just because he, he's a great racer and he knows he doesn't rely on pace. He just goes and runs off of effort and feel. And he figured, he figured out how to always be there with 5k to go. So that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to figure out how to get to that point and, and I'll keep learning. And, um, yeah, I think the biggest thing for me that's a positive coming off of this race is like, I, I came off of Boston two years ago. Uh, and I walked away from that race and I was like, I'm done with the marathon for a while. I don't want to do it. I've run 217. That's fine. Like, let's leave it at that. But now I'm like coming off of this one, like I'm fired up and motivated and like so pumped about the spring. And I just want, I'm competitive. Like I've said a few times and I, I just want to figure out this distance and I know I can, I know I can, but I, for me, I, I need to have that drive. Uh, otherwise, otherwise I'll half-ass it. And I think that that was why I made the switch from track back to the roads this winter. Like I really, after I broke four last indoor season and I wasn't really feeling super motivated to get on the track this year. And I was like, I need to change it up and do something that I really want to do. Um, and for me right now, I think that's the marathon and figuring that out and then hopefully getting to the line at trials and being one of, one of the contenders. So. Yeah, absolutely. And as you progress through learning more and more about the marathon and what you're capable of doing and, and how to put yourself in the best possible place with 10K to go, who are some of the people that you learn from either through conversations or through reading about them or anything like that? Uh, I don't know. Maybe I need to uh, find, find more people to, to learn from. I, I feel like I um, I don't pay like super, super close attention to, I mean, I do, I know what's going on, but I guess I don't study the sport as much as some of the other professional runners. Um, I really admire like what Scott Fobble's done in the past couple of years. That's relatable to me. He was a track guy. He was fourth at the trials, I think in the 10 K, which is incredible. And, uh, now has turned himself into one of the favorites for making a team. And I think that that's super cool. And he's, he's a really hard worker and he, he figured out the distance, not on his first try, but, uh, now has really become a, a true professional at that distance. Um, I guess Jared Ward, same thing. Like he also, they were right next to each other at Boston, but he's very calculated and he runs his own race, uh, and knows what he's capable of and, and trusts his training all the way through. And I think it's cool to see him just continue to improve and continue to like surprise people at that distance. I, I feel like no one ever thinks that he's going to, be in the top three or whatever. And he always finds, finds a way. Um, 
I mean, look at what he did at the Olympics in 2016. Like, I don't think anyone would have predicted that. I think he was sixth. That's crazy. Like, his PRs were so much slower than anyone else in the field. And he still figured out how to go out there and, and get it done. So, um, I think that that kind of stuff is awesome. I mean, even like someone like going a little bit further back, like I went to school at BC, which is right on the marathon course. But like, I remember the year that Ryan Hall just like went out and I don't think it was the year that he ran 204. I think it was the year before. But I just remember watching the live stream and he was just like running his own race, like not running in the pack. And I just remember being like, this guy's an idiot, but like now I, I look back on it and I'm like, oh, he was just like, he trains solo and he was just like doing his own thing. And like, I respect that. So the people that are getting it done now, I think, you know, Scott and Scott and Jared are like right up at the top of the game and um, definitely give guys like me hope that, you know, we can figure it out too. So. So what does recovery look like for you post grandma's? Ooh, good question. Uh, well, it's summer in Boston. There's a lot of fun things to do. A lot of great places to drink. Uh, so I'm definitely enjoying myself this week and uh, indulging a little bit. Uh, I won't do any serious running for at least a couple weeks. Um, I uh, have successfully navigated the stairs today for the first time since the race. Hey, uh, hey which I'm, congratulations. Which I'm pretty proud of. It's, yep, it's a small you. victory in life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, my girlfriend and I went out and played some basketball the other day. Uh, it's easy to shoot, but not so easy to chase the ball right now. But yeah, no, I don't know. I'll, I'll enjoy myself for a few weeks. I am the type of person that needs to exercise and do things. So I will get antsy very quickly. I'll probably run, you know, maybe, maybe tomorrow or Friday. As soon as my quads feel like they can handle the pounding, I'll probably go out and do a little jog just to, to, to exercise, you know. But I won't do anything serious for it. I mean, it's it's a good two to three weeks of just chilling. Um, no workouts, no long runs, very minimal running. And I, I think it's, for me, you need the mental break just as much as you need the physical break. And I've been grinding since pretty much last August. I didn't take much of a break in the winter. I kind of rolled right into this marathon training cycle. So, um, so yeah, I'll take a nice break and maybe go travel a little bit on the weekends. There's a lot of great things to do in Boston. You know, we're lucky that we're close to beaches and also close to mountains. Uh, so there's a lot of cool things that you can do. Um, and then coming back, I, I don't know. We'll see. Uh, thinking about Falmouth would be cool. I haven't done it in a long time. I, that might be too quick of a turnaround. I got to talk to to Randy and see what he thinks. And I would love to do a fall marathon. I think it's going to depend on timing with trials. Uh, so we'll just take a look at things and go from there. I really want to be heavily on the road rate, the U.S. road racing scene this, this fall. So, um, just picking some good races and continuing to like put myself, uh, in races that have like the top tier Americans. So I know that when I get to trials, I can, I can confidently tell myself that I've, I can hang with these guys. Right. Which is kind of like sets up an, an odd thing where you, you know, where you have to make a decision about this marathon because obviously you'd want to get as much experience as possible for all the reasons that you've already mentioned. But at the same time, you want to be fresh for Atlanta and ready to put in your best effort. Yeah. And that's part of the reason why I have a coach. <laughs> I don't have to make those decisions. So um, I think uh, if I was coaching myself, I'd be I'd be signing up for a marathon today, probably uh, trying to figure out what I did wrong. But now I've got someone who's the rational voice and um, 
can point out the fact that it would be a really quick turnaround to do three marathons back to back to back. And a lot of times I know that in my head, like, obviously I, I just need someone to tell me. And then, then I'm like, you're right. That was, that was a dumb thought. So yeah, we'll see how things go. I, I probably won't commit to anything super early, but maybe I will. We'll see. We'll see what opportunities come up and, and how the recovery goes. But I just love running and getting out there and I'm looking forward to not having to do any like workouts for a bit and, and just kind of like get out there and, and log some miles. So the training comes pretty easily for me for the most part. It's just getting out and, and grinding day in, day out when it starts to wear on you, like doing workouts and, and two and a half hour long runs and stuff like that. So I'll, I'll enjoy not doing those things for the next month or so. Sounds good. All right, man. Well, I can't wait to reconnect with you probably in the middle of August or so, depending on the schedule that you put out there with your coach and decide which races you're going to do. But in the meantime, man, good luck with everything. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate you having me on and uh, helping tell my story and everything. Um, looking forward to talking more soon. Thank you, Lou, for coming on this show. I'm actually hoping to in the future, record a couple of these with Lou in person. We're just, shoot, we're like an hour and a half down the road. Just just, a, just a quick jaunt down 95. I'm in the Providence area, and he is up in Boston. He's doing great stuff over at Tracksmith, too. They're not an official sponsor of the show, but they do great stuff in the running community, and he's a big part of that. So go check him out. He's got a great presence, presence online, as does Tracksmith. And if you're in the Boston area, check out their running clubs because they're doing a lot of work um, at night, kind of post, post-work post workouts in the Boston area. little tongue twister there. I'm getting all tied up with my tees. Uh, but yeah, check them out because uh, Tracksmith is doing some great stuff and Lou is a big part of it. So on Friday, next episode of this podcast is going to be with Kellen Taylor, episode four, one of America's best female marathoners, rocking the 224 and the 226 in the past couple of years. She is at the top of the field, uh, and I can't wait for you to hear my episode with her. So in the meantime, thank you so much for listening, for rating, reviewing, and sharing the show. It is so greatly appreciated. So have a great day, and happy running. This has been a production of the Rambling Runner Podcast Network. Thank you to my producer, David Margetti, from InPost Media. Also, thank you to Metapi for the music and his song, Evolution.